several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow Talk to me And it is time for your weekly grape encounter Talk And I have been looking forward to doing this particular show for a pretty long time Because there are times when I find myself in something of a rut And when it comes to drinking wine I think the lion's share of wine drinkers are in a rut most all the time Even though there are literally thousands upon thousands of wine varieties out there, we still tend to stick with the ones that we know best, the Cabernets, the Chardonnays, the Pinots, the Merlots, you know what I'm talking about. So on today's show, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk to a few winemakers that are making some wines that may not be on your radar. They are certainly wines that I'm going to encourage you to try. And to start things off, we're going to go up to Madera, California, where we now have on the line Mike Blaylock. He's the director of winemaking at the Quadi Winery. Mike, you've been there at Quadi as the director of winemaking for, what, 30 plus years, right? Yeah, that's right, David. 30 plus years. And with that kind of a intro and lead in, uh, I'm going to have to be like some kind of a Jay Leno here or something. To... <laughs> so first of all, as a wine lover and also also, as a board member of the Wine Institute in California, you must find yourself wondering why it is that there are so many interesting varietals out there that don't get nearly the buzz that, you know, the old standbys do. Share a few thoughts with me on that before we get into your wines. You know, you can almost address that in a number of different ways. I think certainly one of the first ideas on why people, you know, gravitate to maybe four different, five different varieties is, I don't want to call it peer pressure, but that's kind of what it is. You're always listening to see what your friends are doing. And if they're talking about Chardonnay or Cabernet or Pinot or something else, it's certainly the first thing that you're going to look for. And you hate to be the person showing up at a party or anything else with a strange bottle of wine that nobody's heard of or doesn't want to try. Do you think that people are becoming more adventurous when it comes to drinking wine? Because I think especially with the young crowd, there's a lot more experimentation that's going on. There's no question about it. We probably wouldn't still be in business if trends hadn't changed. And we started embracing all these new kind of varieties out there and different methods of producing some of the tried and true varieties. Uh, there's a lot of different styles out there, and certainly winemakers aren't scared to try something new nowadays. You know, it almost harkens back to the old days, you know, before Prohibition, almost when winemakers were making everything they could get their hands on, you know, any, any kind of variety to try something. Yeah, yeah, if it would ferment, they would make it. <laughs> if it had sugar, that's right, man. That was the whole deal. That's all it takes. <laughs> well, Quadi is a very interesting place because you're making some of the most delicious wines, and the wine called Deviation. 
which is probably the most appropriately named wine of all time, Deviation. And I remember sitting at an industry function and meeting Andy and him pouring this wine. And then as I was sipping it, him informing me that it contained an aphrodisiac called Damiana. Right. That's only one of the herbs. There's actually two herbs in the wine. The base is the orange muscat grape. So it's got this nice kind of a citrus character, a rich citrus character. But you're only mentioning one of them. Rose geranium. I know it's in there. Rose geranium, yeah. Exactly. And in witchcraft lore, that would be uh, one of the main herbs they use in love potions. So you got this love potion thing going on along with the aphrodisiac part. And I'm not saying that things are going to happen, but all the components are there. Plus, you got the alcohol in the wine. So, you know, you got it going. I'll tell you what, it is so (laughs) delicious. It's got the most unusual flavor of any wine just about that I've ever tried. And if nothing else, it certainly puts you in the romantic mindset. (laughs) It it does. You know, uh, David, just as an aside, uh, I remember when you were trying to come up with a name for this wine. The first one was Euphoria. A lot of our wine started with the letter E. So we got this one called Euphoria and tried to get it through the uh, TTB, you know, for label approval. And they rejected it. The reasoning was somebody could believe that wine might make you feel good. (laughs) So the TTB doesn't mind if you're a deviant. Exactly. But you cannot be euphoric. You cannot be euphoric. <laughs> you, can't, you can't feel good, but you can be a, a deviant, yes. Do you have any uh, kind of... That, that, that really speaks to our government. I don't know, man. <laughs> is, there a, <laughs> is there a caution on the label that says, a warning, this wine may make you feel euphoric? <laughs> no, it doesn't. I don't think they would even let me do that. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, we're kind of doing things out of order here because uh, how many times have you heard people say that they prefer to eat dessert first? Why yeah. waste all your calories on the meal, right? You got it. And you guys are pretty big in the dessert category. Well, dessert wines and aperitifs and vermouth. Right. And for those who don't know the difference, and I'm not sure that I know the difference, actually, explain what the difference is between a dessert wine and an aperitif. The aperitif is supposed to stimulate your appetite. I mean, that's what the word means, basically. So in a general way of looking at it, the aperitif wines basically are not as sweet. Oftentimes, they have a slight bittering component in them, which stimulates your appetite, stimulates your salivary glands and stuff. Your mouth waters for the rest of the meal, where the dessert wines traditionally have been relatively sweet. Certainly, they're not as sweet as they used to be, but relatively sweet, and they are, by definition, part of the dessert or the dessert. That's really the main distinction. Yeah, I like the idea of them actually being the dessert. You know? I, I do, t- I do too. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of the new dessert wines, I mean, with Quaddy Winery and other wineries that are making these, they've dialed back on that sweet, cloying characteristic where the acid levels of the grape are in balance. And so it's much more fun wine to have as a dessert. It kind of ends the meal for you. Yeah, and sets you up for a good night's sleep, I think. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> We're talking to Michael Blaylock. Michael Blaylock is the director of winemaking at the Quaddy Winery up in the central part of California. The heart of California. I was going to say almost dead center, as a matter you of bet. fact, but yeah. making some amazingly delicious wines. And just tell me this, Elysium and Essencia are wines that I think virtually all of our listeners, for the most part, can get their hands on. Those are hugely popular wines. Those are. Those are great examples of dessert wines. How much of that wine do you make? Oh, it's not a lot in comparison to the Moscatos that we're making now, but it's probably in the 10,000 case range on each. Yeah, absolutely delicious. And I think you can find those wines at places like wine.com and other online retailers. Am I correct? Yeah. Yep, definitely. Okay. Yeah, we have distribution throughout the United States and probably 30 or 40 countries outside the U.S. Yeah, but my recommendation to listeners is just go straight for the deviation. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you, David. Start there and you're going to be addicted to the Quaddy wines. We don't have a lot of 
time, Michael, but tell me for a moment about the vermouths because I know you guys are considered to be among the finest vermouth makers in the world, not just in the United States, but in the world. And you've got some amazing products there and also the Moscatos. So tell me first about the Moscatos. Oh, David, the Moscato, I mean, certainly it's one of those crazes going on right now, but there's a reason for it. They're one of the most pleasant wines you can try. They've got that beautiful Muscat character. They're a little effervescent and they're low in alcohol. So all those things kind of go together to make a really uh, fun uh, fun kind of wine. If you like sweet and don't want people to point and shake their finger at you because you're drinking white Zinfandel, drink Moscato instead. It's sophisticated. People will admire you for it. You got it. <laughs> it is irresistible, but the, the problem I have with Moscato is I just want to drink it too fast. Like, <laughs> well, I, wait a minute. I don't have a problem with that. You know, we make more all the time. <laughs> okay. All right. And then we just have a little time for vermouth. I know you guys have been making vermouth for an incredibly long time, but is vermouth continuing to make a comeback? Oh, well, definitely. There's no question about it. It kind of surprised me uh, when we first started doing it. It was one of those categories nobody even wanted to talk about, much less drink. But uh, in the last couple of years, people are actually becoming interested in the vermouth itself, not just as a mix, you know, in one of your cocktails, but as an aperitif. And that's very encouraging because there's so many different herbs and processes that go into it that it just, it, it makes something like a whole new experience for wine drinkers. I think I'm kind of guilty of not drinking vermouth and I probably should drink more of it. And in the Grape Encounters Emporium, the wine store that we have, I don't think we have a single bottle of it. I think we need to fix that situation. Oh, there's no question about it. <laughs> because I remember taking a taste of your vermouth. Is it Vaya? Yeah, exactly. Vaya. Yeah. And, and so delicious. And, you know, people think of it as being something that you put in the martini, but my gosh, by itself, it's just so delicious. And it really is that savory flavor that is so popular right now, not just in uh, wine, but but in food. Yeah, we're finding that not only the extra dry, the one you're kind of referring to there, but our sweet vermouth is actually becoming more popular than any of them that we're making. And it's got those nice kind of a uh, holiday uh, spice kind of characters in it that uh, everybody loves. Well, awesome. Hey, it's been nice talking to you about these wines. They're very, very easy to love and very, very easy to get. So your website is quadiwinery.com. You can find really good explanations of the wine there and a good history of how all of this came about. Then if you want to look at some of the other online sites or even your local retailer, you're likely to be able to find these wines. They're not hard to find and they're not hard to love. All right, so we're going to go now, Michael, down the coast into Lompoc in just a moment and talk to the folks at the Palmina Winery where they're making an enormous number of Italian bridles. You want to come and join me, Michael? Oh, it sounds great. All right, okay. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters. And Michael, I sure appreciate you being on the show. Uh, David, thank you so much. Take care. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio, where we tell you things your parents never taught you about wine. But don't blame them. Grape Encounters wasn't around in those days. We like to talk about wine. Now, back to Grape Encounters with David Wilson. It all depends upon your appetite I'll meet you anytime you want In our Italian red 
list. All right, and we are back with Grape Encounters Radio talking today about some of the varietals that you probably ought to be drinking instead of just drinking Chardonnay and Cabernet and all of the popular varietals. Always remind yourself that there are literally thousands of varietals out there. On the line with me now is part of a husband-wife team that owns a wonderful winery with a tremendous reputation that is located in the ghetto. (laughs) That just sounds weird to say. People listening across the country are going, what in the world is he talking about? It's actually known as the Lompoc Wine Ghetto. It doesn't sound pretty, but they make some pretty amazing wines there. On the line with me now is Crystal Clifton, who along with her husband Steve run Palmina Winery, which makes a tremendous number of wines from Italian varietals. I'm not sure if you guys make anything besides that, but welcome to the show, Crystal, and let's talk Palmina for a moment. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here. It is great to have you, and I wish I had enough time to talk about your love affair with your husband. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different show, different podcast. There's a whole other set of people who do those type of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) But suffice to say, their relationship grew out of a love for wine, right? And eventually it was love in the barrel room. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. We're not going there. (laughs) (laughs) New podcasts are being born out of this one. Which is probably what you said to him. I'm sorry, Steve. We're not going there. All right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I actually did turn him down the first time he asked me out and that provided us a good year and a half of working together where he knew I was serious about my love for wine and not to try and distract me from that. But as we work together through the years, we realize that sometimes passion brings people together and you can admire and respect other people's passion. And so from our passion of making wine and really making wine that we really wanted to make, which was wine that was more of a memory maker at the table, food-driven wine, bringing back the cultural understanding and the inspiration of all things Italian, there was just a passion that was striking among us about how we could do this together. And now it's been 14 years. And then, of course, your passion for each other, I'm sure, drives up the quality of the wine as well. Because if there's one thing that is true about winemakers, it's that the more passionate they are in their everyday life, the more passionate they are about the wine that they produce and the better quality of wine, I think. you know, It's wine, absolutely true. Yeah. They're, they're artists. And I think people have a very romantic idea about the wine business because they get to see it in fancy restaurants and they have it at home. But in the end, really, they're artistic farmers. And from being out in the beautiful vineyards and doing the sampling to working with the soils and then getting the fruit here. They're just like a chef who goes to the fish market and selects that perfect fish and talks to all the different purveyors and the farmers and they come back and then they make some amazing dish. It's exactly the same. The difference is there's a lot more capital and patience to make a bottle of wine than just getting fish and making crudo. (laughs) And the other thing is if you do not cook a fish properly when you're creating a recipe, you can just grab another fish. But if you screw up a batch of wine, you have made a monumental and very expensive mistake. And you have to wait a whole nother year. <laughs> yeah, or maybe <laughs> or maybe longer than that. Anyway, let's talk about Italian varietals and, of course, California making 90 to 95% of the domestic wine that's consumed domestically here in this country. And everybody knows, of course, the popular varietals, and we drink more Cabernet and Chardonnay than anything else. But you decided to go Italian. What was driving that decision? Well, you know, Steve and I come from different backgrounds. 
Steve background was based out of his love for Italian food. He had um, an opportunity when his sister had lived in Italy um, and, and she had married an Italian. He went and visited their family. And then that kind of, I think, sparked some passion for him to just really get to know everything there is in the Italian lifestyle. And then this wonderful woman, Paula, who we, we now recognize her through the label Palmina. She was Italian and she really helped Steve with his love for all winemaking and, and cooking and being close to the vineyards in a different way, just really talking about how it influences people and cooking and dining and being together around the table every Sunday. My background came from living in Italy and realizing with such a huge eye-opening moment that, wow, the way that we sit around coffee shops in America is the same way Italians sit around glasses of wine and argue and talk and right. be together. So when I came back from Italy after going to school there, I realized that food and wine was my passion, and I really had no understanding as to why people were not working with Italian grapes. It just seemed absurd to me. And I think Steve had that same kind of, I don't want to call it naivete, but that simple passion of why aren't people doing Italian varietals? This is culturally understanding California and its past 200 years. The people who came here, the farmers, the people who were passionate about winemaking were Italian. When you think about the fact that probably the most influential name in the wine world today and has been for many, many years is the Gallo name, which whether or not you drink Gallo wines, it's important to know they have some premium brands, a lot of them, and also were behind so many of the innovations that took the wine industry to where it is today, not just in California, but around the world. That's a pretty big Italian influence. And I think back to wines like Italian Swiss Colony and remember the fact that in California to this day, there are a lot of Italian winemaking families. Tell us the kinds of wines that you're making. We don't have a lot of time to run through them, but you know, even if you can't get the Palmina wines where you're at, and you probably can online in most states, I would think, but even if you can't get them, you should listen to these varietals and try to find them in your local wine retail store because there's some great stuff and you guys really have hit, I think, the most important ones in your ensemble of wines. Oh, thank you. I think we always tried to have something that's accessible for people to, that really don't know a lot about Italian wine to feel comfortable kind of starting off to get to know Palmina. So we do have a Pinot Grigio and we do have a Sangiovese and a Sangiovese blend that is kind of, for me, that's the pizza and the pasta of the wine variety world from Italy. Everybody, whether or not you know the geeky Italian varietals, most everybody's heard of Pinot Grigio or they have heard of Sangiovese. But let me ask you this about the Pinot Grigio, though, for a second, because sure. people do know it, but if your only experience with Pinot Grigio is some years back, you need to revisit the varietal because there was a lot of lousy Pinot Grigio out there for a long time. And now there's a ton of really good Pinot Grigio. So important to remember that. I always explain to people that our purpose of making Pinot Grigio is to prove it doesn't taste like a water substitute. <laughs> okay. um, that's kind of where we're trying to make Pinot Grigio that has style. I mean, it's related to the Pinot Noir family. It shows character. It shows place. It has so much to give. And it kind of got, to your point, it got a little bit abused in the marketplace, if you will, just by a lot of bulk Pinot Grigio being poorly made and being mass sold. But beyond those varietals, we have such a passion for really educating people about the other varietals we work with, which some of this, I, I would choose probably three that would be probably the most important for your listeners to kind of know, which is Malvasia Bianca, a beautiful aromatic white grape. Oh, that's probably, no, no kidding. Yeah. And, you know, people kind of look at me crazy because there was a lot of Malvasia Bianca planted even in the early 1900s and the 50s and 60s. It was made in a sweet style. Ours is bone dry. But historically speaking, Malvasia Bianca is a very influential 
provincial white grape all throughout Italy and even in California. All right, Crystal, hold that thought, and we'll continue talking about some of the many delicious Italian varietals that are not nearly as popular in the U.S. as French Bordeaux, Burgundy, and Rhone-style wines. My guest is Crystal Clifton, who, along with her husband, Steve, run Palmina Winery, which makes some absolutely terrific Italian wines. When we return, we'll talk about some of the other Italian varietals that make up the complete ensemble of Palmina wines with the Princess of Palmina after this. Unpretentious, unconventional, and uncorked. This is Grape Encounters Radio. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Making wine, feeling fine, spending my time. Making wine Red and white, sweet and dry So many yummy kinds to try Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc Chardonnay and Pinot Noir Making wine, feeling fine Spending my time Making wine And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio Hanging on the vine with us, I mean line with us, is Crystal Clifton, who, along with her husband Steve, own Palmina Winery in the Central Coast wine country of California. There was a time not so long ago when, if you wanted to be successful in the wine business, it was important to make wines from well-known varietals. Today, as more and more curious and adventurous young wine drinkers seek out new discoveries to suit their individual tastes, the selection of varietals stocked in your local wine store gets broader and broader. Crystal and Steve both have strong connections to Italy, so it's no wonder that they've translated their passion for all things Italian into a portfolio of wines that you'll be purely delighted to discover. So, Crystal, what are some of the other varietals that you'd like to have our listeners discover? Any personal favorites? Um, two grapes that I think are a lot of fun for people to get to know is Barbera and Nebbiolo, and those are red grapes. And I would probably venture to say that Barbera is the most influential grape in all of California, apart from Cabernet Sauvignon, because that was planted all over by a lot of the Italian immigrant families, the Central Valley, Amador County, even Napa. And it's a beautiful, juicy red grape that has lots of color, lots of fruit to it, but it doesn't have any tannin. So it really is delicious and big without being heavy. And Nebbiolo is the one we're probably most known for because we're the crazy people who have taken this challenge of Nebbiolo to a new level. It's a beautiful, elegant grape. It's so challenging to make because it, I always call it the man and woman coming together grape. It's female and it's masculine at the same time. It's very giving and soft with rose petal and orange peel, but then it gives you lots of structure and tar and leather and tobacco. So for a Pinot Noir lover or even even a Cabernet lover, you can get so much out of a Nebbiolo. It's a masculine wine that is in touch with its feminine side. That's a great way to put it, yes. There you go. That's a, yep. It's a man who knows how to dress up and be okay with getting <laughs> a little bit, you know, wear colored socks. <laughs> All right, now it just became a metrosexual wine. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I also say it's a woman who's okay wearing leather pants. It can go both ways, you know. <laughs> It's a woman on a Harley. There you go. Uh, okay, all right. We could do this all day long. Okay. <laughs> so, interestingly enough, Nebbiolo goes back to 1802. That's the first time it was planted in California by some beautiful Swiss-Italian families. So, you know, these grapes have a huge history in California, and they're huge food wines. And the people come to us because they want to get to know these varietals. They love cooking. People have such an awareness of the recipes or the farm-to-table movement. Steve and I had this vision 15 years ago that with every single wine we were going to produce, we would craft our own recipe. And it really just helped bridge that gap for people
people to get to know these wines. Great how, idea. How to enjoy them. So, you know, we have recipes, over 200 plus recipes just within the past couple of years. And we try to keep them updated on our website, but it, it's really for our wine club members. And it's been a, a blast for us to do. How wonderful. But, you know, we glossed over, Crystal, one wine that I really want to make sure that we talk about, and that's Sangiovese, which is yeah. such an amazing, amazing wine that doesn't get nearly as much attention as it deserves. Because if you like big reds, you'll love Sangiovese if you're not familiar with it. Certainly a key ingredient that goes into the Chiantis in Italy. But here we call it Sangiovese, and we make beautiful wines from it in California. Correct. I agree. You know, I think it kind of got, unfortunately, bad rap being planted and overcropped, kind of like Pinot Grigio. It was made more of a Cabernet style for a lot of years. But the beautiful thing about Sangiovese is when people get to know Chianti or they get to know Brunello di Montalcino or uh, these gorgeous wines that come out of all of Italy from the Marema to Tuscany, you really can see how Sangiovese benefits from cooler climate, but it also needs some long sunlight hours and growing season. And we have that here in our area in Santa Barbara. And so we've been able to work with a couple different clone types of Sangiovese. We'd even do a Sangiovese blend. You want to hear a crazy story? We do a blend called Alisos. And this was one of my husband's beautiful brainchilds where he decided because the grape quality one year wasn't that great. He took all the Sangiovese grapes that he could and dried them out on drying racks for 90 days to raisin them and concentrate flavors. And then we rehydrated it, pressed it off and put it into a blend with some Merlot. And that became a signature wine of ours. It was one of those when God gives you lemons, you make lemonade. It just was kind of a... Well, it sounds like when God gives you less than perfect grapes, you make Amarone. Exactly. So it's our little <laughs> Sangiovese Amarone. And that's our biggest seller. Um, we can't keep that wine in stock. People love it. So that's kind of the Palmina signature wine. It's not necessarily a quote-unquote standard varietal, but it's definitely something that we've become known for. It's been a blast working with it year in, a year out, just seeing how the Sangiovese can dry and, and do a little something special. Uh, I, I have not tasted that from you, and I would love to taste that wine because I'm a huge fan of Amarone's, and we haven't really had a chance to talk too much about them on the show, but suffice to say, they use a dry-down grape as a big part of the batch, and it makes the wines kind of expensive because it takes twice as many grapes to make a batch of wine, but it's well worth it. And, and it takes twice as long. <laughs> it takes twice as long, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before we go, there's one wine that is one of my favorites. It's the Arnaeus. Oh, yes, Arnaeus. That's a great white. Arnaeus's nickname in the dialect is the Little Rascal, and we planted it at Honey Vineyard back in 2001 in collaboration with the, the Honey family. And at that time, you know, we were the second certified vineyard to plant Arnaeus. I think there was a lot of other plantings that maybe weren't quote-unquote certified, but it was really neat for us to kind of embark on that venture. And we like working with that grape because it really offers, for me, a perfect chance to taste a great white grape that's not as big as a Chardonnay and it's not as light as a Pinot Grigio. It has a real sense of both, you know, a little bit of Santa Barbara fruit, a little bit of bright citrus, but it still has structure. And it's a lot of fun to play with and, and work with. One of my absolute most favorite white wines, period. And very few people have even had this wine because I don't think there's very much of it made in this country. But really, really delicious. Okay, Crystal, if somebody wants to know more about the Palmina wines or possibly order them online or, or at least find a retailer, what do they do? 
Well, I would say that palminawines.com is kind of, you know, P-A-L-M-I-N-A-W-I-N-E-S.com. It's kind of hard to sometimes think of how to spell Palmina, but we have a great website. We also have a great staff that love working with people in the tasting room. We're on the phone to get them familiar with our wines or guide them. And we have a lot of Whole Foods that carry us. That's the easiest retailer across the country that a lot of neighborhoods have. And we have a couple fun events here in the Lompoc Wine Ghetto. People could go to lompocwine.net. There's a whole list of events we're doing for California Wine Month if they're going to be in our area visiting. Yeah. And by the way, it really is worth it. No matter where you're hearing the show, this is the single best time to come to California and do some wine touring and tasting. This is the best time and you won't regret it. You know, come spend four days, spend a week, spend 10 days. Just don't spend the rest of your life because it's getting overcrowded here. But (laughs) (laughs) other than that, (laughs) just Yeah. Well, we're we're really blessed. We have uh, an early harvest going on. So I think Wow, September is actually going to be the calmer part of harvest, believe it or not, for us. Wow, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. I think you've seen it all, and then you start harvesting in July, and you realize yeah. this is not normal. But it is it is what it is, and it's a great quality year. All right. Well, Crystal, so nice to have you on. I so appreciate it, and just steering us towards some of these wines that people are not including in their regular wine purchases. It's time to get a little creative and try some of the other wines. If you want to taste some of the very best wines made in America, America, think Italian. You know, Absolutely. it's not all about French wines all the time, right? Exactly. And you can get familiar with them. You know, we try to post some fun recipes with Facebook and on our website. So if you just want to start with what you do know, which is your love for eating, you can get to know our wines through that as well. All right. Well, listen, very nice to have you on the show. And we're going to talk about some additional wines that may be off the listener's radar. And appreciate it so much, Crystal Clifton, to have you on. And also appreciate the great work that you and your husband Steve are doing making those great Palmino wines. Thank you so much. You guys really do a lot for getting people to know about all the beautiful passion and love that goes into every bottle of wine made by a lot of people. So thank you for what you do. Uh, Well, that's the best job of all. All right, we're going to take a little break in just a moment. And when we continue, we'll take you up to Lake County, California to meet Christian Allman, who serves as vice president of his family's Six Sigma Winery and Ranch. Now, this highly respected family-owned and operated winery in the town of Lower Lake, California, is making some tremendously delicious wines that pair perfectly with the grass-fed beef, grass-fed lamb, and pastured pork raised right alongside the vineyards. Christian's wife, Rachel, is head of the livestock and meat program at Six Sigma. And just how good are the wines? Well, Steve Heimoff, former West Coast editor for Wine Enthusiast magazine, singled out the Six Sigma Tempranillo as the best in California. When we return, join me in a conversation with Christian Allman of Lake County's Six Sigma Winery and Ranch on Grape Encounters Radio. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in Idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Big, fun, and chatty. This is Grape Encounters Radio. Here's David Wilson. I've got wine on my mind all the time. All right, 
are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and, you know, there's some very exciting wines out there that we forget to try, and now we're going to take a trip up to Lake County, where I have on the line Christian Allman, who is the vice president of Six Sigma Winery and Cattle Ranch, right, Christian? That's right, Winery and Cattle Ranch. And how exactly does that work? Well, it's a old-fashioned formula. Modern wineries, of course, will do some grapes and crush some grapes and make some wine, and it's a great system, and it's commendable, but if you look at some of the old Spanish and old French vineyards, it's farming, and uh, farming requires, in, in our humble opinion, some livestock to make some fertilizer, and, and then you grow some grapes, and then you grow some blackberries and run some pigs, and my great-grandpa raised 10 kids on a farm of 25 acres of completely diversified crops, and we're sort of edit, copy, edit, pasting that model onto a California winery. And how is that working for you? It's exactly what my great-grandpa would have done on his farm in Copenhagen 80 years ago. Six Sigma, you guys are making a lot of the conventional wines, a lot of traditional wines, but uh, one of your specialties is a wine that I keep saying is poised to do amazing things, and it certainly is an obscure grape, but Tempranillo was a wine that you didn't see much of not very long ago, starting to see more and more of it. Is Tempranillo poised to take the world by storm? That's I mean, an it, excellent question. Obviously, it already has and is in Spain, but it's a different story here in the States. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. In Spain, it's, of course, extremely popular, and something like the fourth most widely planted wine grape in the world is just that they, first of all, get low yields over there, and secondly, they drink most of it themselves. Yeah. Uh, so when we came over here, uh, stepped out of the truck in Lake County for the first time, it just reminded my whole family of family trips to Spain. We grew up in Denmark, and driving to Spain was like a long weekend as of driving to Texas when you're in California. The climate here is so similar, not just because it's warm and dry in the summer, but we have those remarkably cool nights here like you have in Rioja and Ribeiro de Duero. And so Tempranillo is an awesome grape, and you can certainly get a great deal of quality fruit out of it in a number of different places. But to get awesome fruit out of it, you have to have that high altitude. And with the altitude and the dry weather, then comes that almost desert-like hot, dry day and then a super cool night. So we can have 105 degrees in the summer here during the day, and then it flies back down to 55 degrees at night. And that maintains that acidity in the grape, which is the difference between a decent Tempranillo and a world-class Tempranillo. I think one of the things that's also very interesting about what you're doing there is you're doing some, what I would say is unconventional blending, although I think anything goes these days, but you're blending, for instance, Tempranillo, Cabernet, and Syrah together. We do do that. We do our uh, diamond mine cuvee, uh, named after the quartz rocks that sparkle in the vineyard. And our goal is essentially to communicate the quality of the property here. Something we love about wine is that it takes a season, it captures it, saves it in the wine grape, and it's all in there. If there's a little smoke in there, if there's a little pine smell in there, it's all in that bottle. And so our goal isn't necessarily to stick to the conventional rules of blending as much as it is just to make the most delicious wine that communicates a sense of this place through the bottle. Why do you think the blending floodgate has been opened up? I would say even five years ago, the kinds of blends that we're seeing today absolutely did not exist. And now, especially in the last few years, we're seeing what would have been considered to be outlandish blends. But now I think it's gained a lot of acceptance by, would you say, most winemakers? I say so. I mean, you, you pick your style and there's certainly a place for a pure Pinot Noir and a pure Tempranillo. Our Tempranillo, for example, is, is 100% Tempranillo, but it's a uh, 
traditionally, I guess, in a young industry like the California industry is, where quality wine wasn't really made until the 70s, I guess they just took their cue from Europe, as you would expect. And in Europe, of course, they have very specific regions to help guide the customer with very specific blends. So it's easy to grab a bottle off the shelf and, and know what that tastes like from a given region because they have the rules. I guess the Americans just took the rules and now they realize, well, this is America. We can, we can, we can do, do what we want. Do whatever we want to do. That's right. Tell me about some of the other varietals that you're working with there on the property. One of my favorites, Petit Verdot. I've said it many times that Petit Verdot is a wine that's really poised to do some great things and we're seeing more and more of it planted. You blend it only or do you also serve it up as a single varietal wine? We do grow some and we blend it. Now what we do do is every year we do a couple of one-off fun, light-hearted wines. Sometimes they turn serious and that, that's the result of a winemaker who's very creative and so if we've got a batch of something that just rocks at the winery, then he may throw it into 50K's lot and then we ship that out to the wine club as something unique. So while we typically blend the Petit Verdot, it's, it's not unlikely that some of it's going to pop out of the barrel some year, be absolutely awesome. And, and then we would just do a, a 50K's run of, of reserved Petit Verdot for the club here. Then one I really want to talk about is Calassiano because that's an interesting grape, I think traditionally blended with Tempranillo, but a good wine all by itself. It is, and it has a lot of the same characteristics as the Tempranillo. We have so little of it here that we haven't done it in a varietal bottling yet, but we do throw it into our Tempranillo. It's just a, a really nice wine to work with. From a farming viewpoint, which is my background, it's uh, leaves are great big and floppy and edgy like the Tempranillo, and the clusters are large, and, and the berries are larger than Cab, and so forth. So it's a fun grape that we've experimented some with, and we very well may put in a couple more acres in the future. Right, so we have just about a minute left, but let's talk about your wine club for a second, because one of the things that I talked to you about offline that I think is wonderful, you know, so many wine clubs, you end up getting the very same wines that you see in stores or that you can pick up at the winery, but you designate a lot of bottles strictly for your wine club members. And, you know, that I think is the difference between a good wine club and a bad one. There's no reason to join a wine club if all they're going to do is send you the wines that are readily available anyway. So tell me some of the things that you make available to your club members that I wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Absolutely. We got a couple different hits with that. As I shared before, it's a, it's a ranch. And so part of the wine club perk is that we do these great big farm-to-table dinners with 75 people at a big long table. And then we serve some of these oddball wines there that go into the shipments. And probably one of the most unique that we do a batch of every year is our uh, bootleg Sauvignon Blanc. It's a Sauvignon Blanc, obviously. And it's inspired by the bootleg cabin that came with the property here, which is hidden back in the back corner of the ranch, almost inaccessible except by foot or mountain bike. And our winemaker just loved that story when he came out there. So he said, hey, if they'd been making wine, this is how they'd do it. They'd take the grapes, crush them up, throw them in a barrel for fermentation, wood, a barrel fermented on the skin. And so the result is this uh, deep golden Sauvignon Blanc aged in acacia wood. Acacia wood? That's right. And what kind of flavor does that impart into the wine? It's tough to describe. It's, it's less toasty than the oak. It's a little bit more floral. And it's just a, a neat experience. You, you almost have to try it to be able to describe it. It's been a real fun wine for us, if nothing else, just because it's so much fun that it's different and it's an awesome wine at the same time. Oh, awesome. Well, listen, Christian, so nice to have you on. The winery is Six Sigma. And that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. We'll be back here next week, same time, same channel. So grab yourself a bottle of something that you're not used to drinking and join me here next week. We'll talk then. 
You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.